Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. And that is one of my absolute favourite songs. Down Market from the Blades, this is Mystery Train, the Sunday night special where we get someone in to pick the tunes. And tonight, I'm delighted to say, from the Blades, Paul Cleary. Paul, great to have you here. Thanks, John. I'm really glad you're in because I know I know this is going to be good. Great. I know you're a man of infinite taste. Well, I hope so. <laughs> so, uh, before we, we play your first, uh-huh. your first choice, um, tell me a little bit about when you were a kid in Ring's End, mm-hmm. what kind of music you would have heard in the house? Not your own music, but music in the house. Well, I was really lucky. Uh, um, my dad, who died in 2009, uh, he was a great man, and but he he loved his music. So really, we, myself and my brother, who died this year, Larry, uh, another great man who I loved dearly, um, uh, my dad was, was feeding myself and Larry classical music, music, uh, Rock music, particularly the Beatles, but also he had all... Early, I mean, they must have been worth a fortune. I don't know where they went. I think they went when we moved house. He had pictured sleeve things of uh, EPs by Buddy Holly, wow. Bill Haley, uh, Dionne Warwick, all that stuff. And I mean, this was just the best music. It was just, it was just pure luck. There's no, there's no talent involved in your dad having impeccable taste. Yeah. And that's what it was. And like, I'll give you a very small example. I remember he was going into town to buy a record and he said to me, I fancy some uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. I've heard some more of him and I'm really getting into him. And I said, Gray, are you going to buy an album? He said, yeah, I'm going in. He goes in to buy a J.S. Bach album, comes back with uh, Running With The Pack, Bad Company. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously he was looking in the letter B. And, uh, he, but he knew his stuff. He said, look, I couldn't find a Bach I was looking for. But I love Paul Rogers' voice. And uh, I th- I've, I've heard a track in this album. He said, oh, and this is a great album. So that's the dad I had in terms of it music. It covers quite a bit of musical territory, doesn't it? Really, it does. And then my brother, Larry, my late brother, Larry, who who got into sort of country and stuff and made the boards and Grant Parsons. I mean, obviously, even for, for my choice, I was nearly going to include Wild Horses, Grant Parsons. That was Larry's thing. He loved all that as well. And I was reluctant at first. I thought the boards, I wasn't quite into them. Then I really got to fall in love with them. Now, yeah. if I hear Torn, 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 any of those, I just love it now. The harmonies are beautiful. Now, just know? to get back to your dad for a mm-hmm. minute, if, if you were living in, uh, if you were from, say, Liverpool, mm-hmm. for instance, Port City and the docks and all of that. Yeah, yeah. The normal response would be, "Well, your dad got into all this music because of his music was uh-huh. coming through the port, through the docks. Yeah, there were sailors yeah. coming in, and there were American soldiers, and this kind of stuff." That's uh-huh. usually the story for English uh-huh. people. Uh-huh. Um, what What was it like? Was that any? Did that have any bearing on Ring's End? Because it was the docks were there. Sure, no, yeah. we were down the, down by the port. In fact, we only lived oh, literally fifty yards from River Wall. Yeah, that was my parents' old house. No, I just think he was one of those guys. He was, in fact. A musician who never got to be one. He just knew music and loved music so much. But the, the you know, the possibilities weren't there for him really. I mean, you know, he was uh, he was from the South Circular Road originally. Then he moved to near uh, to Drimna. He's a working class uh, man, and he was a bus conductor. And uh, but he just never got the opportunity. But he had a good singing voice too. And I think he would have loved being a band. And he loved arranging. And he loved he loved that all music. Like the last gig I went to him was uh, the arrangements of uh, Nelson Riddle yeah. in the National Concert Hall. That's what he was into. Like when, we were, when I was young, he was always saying to me, listen to the arrangement, Paul. 
the song was good, but the arrangement was important too. He loved the arrangement. Where you know? was he? Where was he sort of educating himself musically? Was he picking this up off the radio? Or da- I asked him about his, his dad wasn't really musical mm. either, and so it was one thing he just went for. He really enjoyed. He just made. I don't know where it comes from. Is it a genetic thing? Is there a genetic predisposition for these things? But you need exposure as well. You, you see, need exposure. You need to, he I'm just wondering where he heard Bach, for instance. He, you know, he to probably a lot the radio. radio. Yeah. I mean, for instance, my mom, uh, my, my late mom, she when I when I was asked about the first date or the first meeting, when she called us, she called to his house for the first date, and his mum said, "Now he's in, uh, he's he's in the room listening to a play, <laughs> in a, in a darkened room." Very good. And my mom knocked on the door and he asked, "I'm just listening to a, a, a doll's house." Isn't that just wow? Ibsen, Ibsen. You know? So that's the way he was. He was one of these working class men who loved. Uh, I loved literature, loved music, and uh, that was his thing. And, and um, you know, he'd go, he was a bus conductor, but he'd come back and listen to Mendelssohn. And that was his whole thing. You know, and he, of course, this was partly my um, background, my socialist background and my whole thing, and still is my thing, for working class people not to be afraid of listening to music and reading books. Literature and music are not to preserve the middle class. Well, I want to get you into know? that. Let's get into that a little yeah. bit later on. But first, um, your first musical choice is XTC. Now, those guys could write songs. Yeah, well, the, re- well, uh, the opening line of this is probably, this uh, sort of encapsulates or condenses the history of time. It's, uh, don't you know about a zillion years ago, uh, some star sneezed, now they're paging you in reception. <laughs> and that's XTC. We're all like the first choice of my guest tonight, Paul Cleary of the Blades. Paul's picking all the music tonight. I know I'm not surprised XTC would feature when you hear right. when you hear them. Yeah. It's that, that, what is it? it? It's 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 just the best kind of pop writing, really. Andy Partridge. It is, and Andy Partridge is great, and he's just one of those guys that passed a lot of people by. I still mention XTC, and people really don't know who they are, which is a shame. But they came out around around seventy seven, seventy eight. They came to prominence, though. I think they were in the bands around seventy four, seventy five. And they're from Swindon, which is, again, it's not New York, Paris, London or Munich, you know. And there's not very... In fact, the only... Elvis, or um, Gilbert O'Sullivan, was born in Warford, but I think he grew up in Swindon for most of his life. So a band from Swindon, they're just a bit unusual. And uh, there's a song called This Is Pop on the first album, which is sort of uh, XTC, in that they're at their best when their verses are sort of angular and asymmetrical and their choruses are more Beatles-like. In fact, they use a Beatles chord, Hard Days Night chord, to start that song. But a lot of songs are like that. He's just a little left to centre. Bit sort of, I think a, a bad word, derogatory word, would be wacky. Right? I don't think I think he's more than wacky. Yeah. Brilliant songwriter. He's a real sort of English eccentric in a way, a mixture of the extrovert introvert, you know, and and uh, a fantastic guitarist. I'm not a very good guitarist, but people who know about these things tell me he's really he's a really great guitarist. You know? When did you first perform, Paul? Anything at all? With you when did I first perform? We played our first well, gig. Well, not necessarily the Blades. Right. When did you first? I don't know. Sing at a so, party. Oh, that was in a uh, choir. S- sing, um, sing at uh, mass. Yeah. yeah, I sang at mass. Uh, I went to start to see. Sandy Mount National School uh, in Dublin and uh, yeah we, there was a choir I was reasonably good at it if I do say so myself there was a few of us who could sing and I liked it yeah. and we sang these hymns in Latin and so on any Latin I know is just from singing those hymns you know uh, but I thought it was great and, and uh, I really enjoyed it and the organ the sound of the organ and I knew I was into music even then although my dad as I said was feeding us this stuff and I forgot to mention my dad was into jazz big jazz and that was one, one form of music that I never really took to I tried and I tried himself and my brother would talk about jazz. There was this beautiful, mellifluous language I didn't understand and they would be talking about jazz. And well, that, we might get, we get back to that later yeah. and I'll try and, try and convert you. Yeah. Well, back to Star of the Sea. Yeah. Um, did you, 
you were like a boy soprano at that point. Yeah, like, yeah. You, you didn't take singing any further. No, than no, that. no, no. Okay. And did you ever sing solo? No, I didn't. Uh, although I used to sing a lot at home and to myself. And uh, uh, funnily enough, I remember I had a, I got my tonsils removed when I was sixteen. It was quite late. And one of the first things when I woke up, uh, when I was in bed in the eye and ear house, was I would try to sing to make sure that I could still sing. So that was significant. I mean, looking back, I looked back and I was thinking, why was I doing that? I must have really wanted to be a singer. Yeah. Uh, I, I certainly loved music and loved singing. And even then when I started to listen to like, the Beatles, the, uh, their albums, they were redone where the music was like a, basically a karaoke record. The music was on one side. Uh, the vocals around the other, so you could turn down one side and just have the music, yeah. and you could sing along. Yeah. And I used to love that Rubber Soul, Revolver, those albums. I used to try and sing along too. So I just, I must have wanted to be a singer. I just loved it, you know. First band that I sang with. Mm. Well, that was the Blades. Mm. That was uh, me, Larry, and a couple of other guys. There was five of us: uh, John Bork, Joe Donnelly, and Pat Larkin, of course, uh, drummer Pat Larkin. And, uh, you know, like most bands at the time, we just wanted to do something. We thought this was our opportunity because, uh, so, uh, you know, with the advent of the Sex Pistols and New Wave and Punk, we realised you didn't have to go to university, you didn't have to know how to read or write music. This is a DIY job that we could be part of. I mean, uh, you know, I was around the time 16, 17 in 1977, so this was our chance to do something. And... Uh, we rehearsed, we got in, it was, I mean, it was so, it was laborious to acquire or buy instruments and a, a rehearsal room, amplifiers, these things are magical things. Microphones, you know, yeah. plugs, leads. And then the logistics of things is really difficult. How to, how to get around with yeah, them. Really difficult. You know, amps you know? in the backs of bicycles. Oh, we travelled yeah. to the gigs on the bus with the, yeah. all the cliches with us with the, the uh, guitars in, in black plastic bags yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And we, we did all that, you know. And, and uh, but, oh, look, to us, it was a magical world, as I said, because the background was there for, for myself and my brother, Larry, because my dad was into music. So we knew the magic of it. I mean, we were kids. We went to see the likes of Help, and, 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 but we really listened to them and we're really into the music. And myself and Larry eventually tried to see, could, could we sing harmonies the way Lennon McCartney could sing harmonies? That type of thing. And, of course, genetically, our voices must have been uh, suited. Well, tell me, where, where and how, Paul, did you get that kind of punk message where did you hear that or see that and, and realise this is something we could do because you know for a lot of people who weren't living say in London or in Manchester where the Pistols came to perform mm. it, they didn't know it was happening they right. didn't know it was going on so where did you kind of pick up on this sort of zeitgeist or whatever it was we got it from uh, the music papers every week uh, my brother would get the enemy and I'd get sounds it's as mm. simple as that because yeah. we just wanted uh, because we were into music anyway we wanted to know what was happening and what was new. We didn't just want to be, you know, reading these music with coloured posters of Elton John or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, yeah. but we wanted to know what was going on and how could we be involved. Yeah. And uh, so I remember reading the first reviews of the Sex Pistols saying, you know, something like, what was the, what's the famous quote? This is not music. This is not about music. It's about revolution or about anarchy or something like that. Even the name, the Sex Pistols, I just have a great name. I never heard... Even before I heard heard them sing, I heard Johnny Rotten sing. I just thought it was a great name for a band. Oh yeah, well we all knew about them before we ever heard them. Yeah, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I do remember the first time their name popped up on top of the pops and being whatever age I was, very embarrassed to yeah. be in the room. Right. With this word. Yeah, yeah. There you go. I think it might be time to play this. The pistols there, God save the Queen. The choice of Paul Cleary, who's with me in studio. Do you know, Paul? You're talking about you know. A lot of stuff gets written about punk, you know, yeah. like it's, you know, it's analysed and it's been looked at every every way. 
But, you know, whatever about DIY and all the rest of it, when you listen to that record, it's extremely well made, extremely well played, extremely well produced. Yeah. It still stands up. Oh, it's great. Sonically and so on. Oh, it's whereas, great. Whereas, you know, that's not really what punk was supposed to be. Well, I don't know. And I, I, it's a point that certainly we could, we could talk about. It. I think it was, you see, but it wasn't. The majority of records were pretty poor in mm. terms of the musicianship. And when I say musicianship, I'm not talking about Steve Hillage here. Yeah. You know? yeah. I'm just talking about the, the musicians getting what they want down and mm. the producer like... Uh, Chris Thomas, Chris Thomas yeah. being good enough to do it uh, and being technically good enough to do it. But if you listen to that, it's it, you know Steve Jones is playing the bass as well. He's just rooting the chords really on the bass, but he's playing the guitar, he's playing the bass. Paul Cook is a fantastic drummer. It's all very tight. They were well mm. rehearsed. And, and Johnny Rotten comes in with his, as I was saying, the best non-singer's voice ever, really. Yeah, he's kind of like he's kind of like an actor. He is like you an know, actor, it's like yeah. Richard the Third is performing yeah, this song. Yeah, that's it. And yeah, yeah I, I've, I've heard that mentioned before, Richard the Third, with him. And that's where, but it's a great, it's a re, they're really tight. And again, it's a very old expression, but it really applies to the Sex Pistols. A lot of the records at the time were really poor. They were DIY sounding. They were ramshackle. And they sound thin now. Yeah, they very thin. Whereas they, that doesn't. They that, fell apart. I mean, the we original. Had, we had this up loud here in studio and it, yeah. it would blow the head off. Oh, you. it's fantastic. There's a lot of records at the time that we thought weren't, are, are kind of thin. Know. You know, I've heard a few and yeah. they're very disappointing, yeah. you know. And remember, like, uh, Glenn Matlock was the original, but he was a fantastic bass player. Yeah. He, was, he really is a very good musician. Mm. I mean, I've seen... I. I went to see, he's in, he was in a band later called The Spectres mm. and I went to see him in a small little venue in London called The Hope and Anchor and, and uh, he was fantastic, like playing, singing and playing bass with his fingers out of Paul McCartney but he was really good and if I can name drop, my, my, my only brief connection with the Sex Pistols was that uh, we were playing the gig as the Blades at a place called The Greyhound in Fulham and uh, our publicist at the time, a guy called Chris Carr, an Australian guy, great guy, I hope he's still around, if he is, hi Chris, he was a, uh, he was doing something with the Spectres, who were um, uh, Glenn Matlock's new band, and he brought Glenn Matlock to the gig. But Glenn Matlock came back afterwards, a couple of beers on board we all had. But he was saying to me and my brother, he was saying, it's great, you're like a punk Everly Brothers, which I thought was a great compliment That's a good way him, to put which, it, yeah. which is great. A good way to put it. Yeah. And do you have any sense of, I don't know if disappointment is the word, or does it bother you at all, that you look back at that era and you realise, you know, actually much of, a lot of it really was a swindle? A lot of it really was an affectation. It was a, it was a fashion thing rather than a music thing. You uh, know? Well, uh, no, I'm okay with it. I think maybe some of the people who, uh, maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe the people who really bought into the whole lot in terms of the garb and stuff, yeah. which I didn't do, I have no criticisms to make of that. Now, remember, I was, uh, I would be more attracted to uh, maybe the jam and mods, I suppose. Yeah. I would be at heart a mod yeah. in terms of I was always into soul music and pop music and the Beatles and the Beatles with their suits and so on. And so so I wasn't too attracted to the punk yeah. gear, although I think it looked great. I'd rather have a guy with blue hair and a, a ring to his nose than a guy in a business suit any day. <laughs> so I'm fine with that anyhow. So I didn't buy into the whole package in that sense. And I think you're right. I think with, with you know the great rock and roll swindle, but I think that was Malcolm McLaren trying to milk everything he could from it in yeah. the end. But I never thought Johnny Rotten, Steve Jones, these guys, I never thought that they were shams at yeah. all. Now, my, my favourite thing of punk, a quote about punk is something Nick Lowe always says, right. which is, uh, it, you know, it, it wasn't about... Uh, it wasn't about music, really. It was about attitude. Yeah. And that, that attitude you can apply to, to anything. And in fact, it had been applied to things throughout the history of art and yeah. so on. It wasn't just a brand new thing. Sure. It was an attitude. Yeah. So what you got, you guys got from that was uh, permission kind of to form a band. And well, that was off it. Off you go. Yeah. And also there was a lot of chat, of course, about 
punk being a street thing and a working class thing. And we, we, we again, we didn't have to make that up. You know, that was our that was our background. So we thought, well, look here, we, we you're right. It's a good way of putting. It. Actually, we were given permission to do this thing, and and uh, so we took it very seriously and. Uh, we were listening to all the punk records and, and we had, as I said, Larry had his Grand Parsons and his boards and his uh, Merle Haggard, that type of stuff he loved. And, and, and I had my Smokey Robinson and, and Marvin Gaye and all that stuff. And we, we said, well, look, if, we can, if there's any way we can try, we'll have, the, we'll have the best band ever, but if there's any way we can put this stuff together, you know, yeah. at least we could aim high, you know. So that's what we did. We tried to get some of all that in. And then, of course, you have the added uh, uh, hardship of trying to make it original too. So it was, it was a difficult task, we said, as a very high bar. But that's what you have to do, you know. You've mentioned the Beatles a couple of times so far. So let, let's play a track from the Beatles. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you could have picked hundreds of songs. Oh, but yeah. you have picked Nowhere Man. Nowhere Man. Yeah, I, 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 well, I love this song. This is one, it's from Rubber Soul, I think. And, uh, but there's also plenty from Revolver. Sgt. Pepper I still like. Look, I know the Beatles really well. Or I could have even, even the White Album, Martha, My Dear, which is a different song altogether. The Paul McCartney song, I love that one. I Will by Paul McCartney, I love on, on the White Album. So there's plenty. And even, uh, there's even For No One, which is a lovely song in a Paul McCartney mm-hmm. song, which has the French horn, which I love in pop music. You know, uh, the French, God only knows, but the Beach Boys says the French horn, Yvonne Element, if I can't have you as French horn, I think the Rolling Stones... Uh, can't always get what you want. I just love the French horn and pop music. Well, now that um, you mention it, let's start with this one and then we'll have nowhere, yeah. man. Nowhere, man, the Beatles. And before that, glad to be in that company. Um, God only knows from the Beach Boys. Paul Cleary's picking the music tonight. Paul Cleary of the Blades. Uh, those songs are very much connected, aren't they? Because McCartney loved the Beach Boys oh he loved it yeah that's uh, God only knows from Pet Sounds which was uh, uh, Brian Wilson's masterwork in a way and and, uh, when I think it was Mike Lover some of the Beach Boys went over then to promote it to bring it over to England they actually had the the hard copy of the record themselves and McCartney and Lennon McCartney particularly wanted to hear it wanted to hear what Brian Wilson was up to and they went they met in a hotel brought it up to the room and played her a couple of times and McCartney said that God only knows the best pop song ever written, mm. which is high praise from probably the best songwriter ever, you know. Yeah, well, it's uh, not wrong either. No, no. And, but then when you hear the two together, that was, I think they were both 1965. Um, so you've, you've started a band and uh, what about, you know, when, you've, when you got together the first time, Paul, mm-hmm. um, what, were you, what were you hoping to achieve, if you know what I mean? Oh, that's very difficult now. I mean, it, again, it's a good question. And it's so it's so long ago now. I well, the first thing is the idea of being in a band is, is was a great thing. It was very glamorous is not the right word, but it was certainly uh, it was another world. Mm. Okay, it was a parallel universe that. Uh, and punk was the portal. We just we can we can go through this, you yeah. know, <laughs> like being John Malkovich. We can go yeah. through this, and we can, we can be in this world and and be be in a band. I still like the idea of being in a band. By the way, I mean, I like the idea more than the actual the actuality of it, you yeah. know. Yeah. But uh, then it was just imagine we could actually have our own band, and it wasn't for it wasn't it wasn't for sex and drugs and rock. It wasn't for that. It wasn't to get girls. And we just we really loved the music. Yeah. I mean, as nerdy as it sounds, we certainly brother were really into the music. And uh, but we were severely limited. Particularly I was. Now my brother was reasonably dexterous at that age as a guitarist, but he had a lot to learn by his own admission. And you were playing bass. At that I was point. playing bass because I could the usual because yeah. I couldn't play guitar properly. Oh, I know. Uh, um, 
So we were severely limited as to what we could do, as to how, what type of songs I could write, because I only knew four or five chords. Because I remember going to do our first demo. Uh, there's a guy who worked in a fairly big studio and got us some downtime there and being like very intimidated by the whole situation because our, our inadequacies as musicians were woefully exposed, really. Uh, but it was worthwhile doing and it was still such a thing to be doing. Like we went in on downtime, so we went in at 12 o'clock and got, got out of the studio before somebody came in at 7 o'clock that morning. And that was, I mean, to, just just to do that alone was, was something else, you know. And were you writing songs right from the off, Paul? Yeah, I wanted to do that. Again, it was a Beatles thing. I, I thought, we're not going to... Now, we did covers in, in, in our first gig in 77. Uh, I think I, we did a few of my songs. It wasn't Hot For You, which was one of the four songs I wrote. A couple of half-baked ideas, I think we did, but it was mostly cover versions. You know, Johnny Be Good and mm. all those type of ones, the usual stuff. But look, once we got serious as a three-piece... There was no way we were going to do other songs. We only ever did one or two covers. I wanted them all to be our songs, either mine, Larry's, or mine and Larry's. Because our first demo, Larry had a song on it. I wanted Larry to, to write more. He just didn't didn't want to. He was a very modest guy, he was. And, and uh, he he wanted me to do it. He encouraged me. He was great for that. You know, I'd go into Larry for a new song and say, what about this? He'd say, that's great, develop that and so on. So he didn't even want to do his own song on the first demo, but he did it. I had this idea with the Blades, uh, myself and Larry, because he wasn't called he called himself Schreiber mm. and I thought he could be clearly in Schreiber some yeah. Lennon McCartney type thing I don't know I just wanted that sort of I wanted to be two songwriters in the band yeah. uh, of course I was happy to push forward once he stepped back a bit but the original idea was for myself and Larry to be the songwriters you know So your model was kind of the Beatles. I was, yeah. And, and I suppose the jam, three-piece. The jam as well. Yeah, there was a mixture there. And again, we wanted to wear, it uh, could have been influenced by the jam, although I think we just wanted to wear something neat, uh, modish in a way, because cause even when we started to play the Magnet Bar in Pier Street, that's where we cut our teeth in a way. I used to compile these cassette tapes of music that we'd play before the gigs and the music would be soul music, mod music, bit of northern soul even. And I wanted to recreate what I never had was that sort of northern soul feel, a club type feel. So it was new wave, it was punk, but it was also mod music from the 60s and soul music and a bit of reggae. I used to play a bit of Jimmy Cliff and stuff like that. So that's what I wanted. It was a sort of like uh, the Taste Club, if you like. It was the Magnet Bar in, in Pier Street, you know. That sounds great. You were kind of like a mod before you knew you were a mod, yeah. I guess. You were already a mod. We were, and that was it. And that's why I remember reading a few interviews with Paul Weller of The Jam and when he started to explain the mod ideal, if you like, it was, it was, it was me, if you like, his taste in music and stuff. And I had no problem been aligned with that type of... You know, there were a couple of NAF bands, uh, the, the mod resurgence in England, like the Merton Parkers and the Lambrettas and stuff. When I say NAF, I'm sure they had some good songs, but really, the sound was quite tinny and I regard, to me, um, uh, uh, mods was maybe the jam and some of the kinks, some of the Beatles, that type of stuff that I mm. loved, you know. You mentioned Smokey there in Motown. Let's have uh, one of your next choices, Tracks of My Tears. Tell you, Paul, there's nothing wrong with that. Paul Cleary's in studio picking all the tracks tonight. Smokey Ramos in there, tracks in my tears. More perfection. Ah, beautiful. Voice of an angel, really. We were just reminiscing during that was being played about Smokey Robinson in Vicar Street and he had Marv Tarplin with him, the yeah. guitar player. Oh, so he kind of wrote the song, really. Well, he came up with the riff at the beginning. Yeah. And I, I've heard Smokey say that he got yeah. the idea for the song from the riff. And, I, you know, you just wonder, should the guy have got a credit? I don't want the lawyers coming in here, you know. Well, it really was the highlight of the show for me that this man who'd been sitting there for most of the night as if he wasn't really in the That's band right. suddenly yeah. started to play that. Yeah, I mean, it was, love, it was a great gig. I mean, he's him. such a great singer. I mean, he did a little bit of the, 
Mr. Loverman shtick, which doesn't suit him. Yeah. But maybe that's show business, you know. You well, some of that's expected in America, you know. Sure. That's the problem. Yeah. Sometimes they bring American shows over here. Yeah. I saw Solomon Burke here, who started the show as some kind of thing he'd obviously done in Vegas, mm. but he twigged. Wasn't he happening. twigged after the first track and yeah. he just said, and then he realised, no, yeah. these, these people want a proper, proper gig. Sure. And, and he did it, you know. Yeah, I think Smokey toned it, toned it down a bit. Uh, as, I think a similar thing happened. He knew it wasn't quite happening, that Mr. Loverman. Uh, yeah. you'd look, you're talking about probably America's best songwriter, you know. Yeah, but there were you loads know? of people, that, mostly men with plastic bags with 50 albums to be signed, I you know. know. Do you know what I mean? People I there did know their stuff. And you know? I saw Roddy Doyle up the front as well. Fair, fair play to me. <laughs> it was all coming together <laughs> yeah, that night. Yeah. And another thing about Smokey Robson as well is the lyrics. If you listen to the lyrics of Tracks of My Tears we've just played there, Beautiful song. I mean, well, Dylan said he was American. St- you know? Dylan's famous line about him was that he was America's greatest poet. Smokey Robinson, Robinson. Yeah, yeah. So. That's beautiful stuff, you know. Lyrically, a lot. I mean, there's very, there's a, there are some songs from really good lyricists when you see the lyrics written down. It is like a really nice poem, a really mm. good poem, mm. strong poem. And then when you hear his beautiful voice and the, and the music behind it. But he's a great lyricist too, as well as being a great melodist and a fantastic singer and arranger, you know. When did the uh, Blades, do you think, Paul, get a bit of traction? When do you think things start? You, you, even in your own mind, there's a bunch of lads playing together. You thought, right, hang on now, we're getting the hang of this. We're yeah. good. Well, in my mind, in terms of popularity, and it's, it's all we're not talking here, we're talking scale here, you know. But uh, I remember going to see a band called The Vipers, a Dublin band called The Vipers in McGonagall's. Now, funny enough, our bass player, Brian Foley, was in The he Vipers was in the Vipers, at the time. Yeah. And uh, Paul Boyle was the singer. Dave Maloney's a drummer, and and uh, uh, Dave Sweeney, George Sweeney, was uh, the guitarist. Anyway, myself, and my brother went to see the Vipers in, in uh, McGonagall's in Dublin in one Saturday afternoon. <clears throat> I don't know what year it was. Possibly seventy eight. I'm guessing seventy eight. And I remember thinking, there's a local band. There was a queue outside to see them. I remember being in a queue to see a new wave stroke punk band. I thought, this is something, you know? And uh, we were in the queue. I went with Larry. We were watching the gig and we were sort of rehearsing at the time. We were at the playing gig in 77. I remember thinking, you know, these are good band, Larry, but in our own sort of confidence stroke arrogance, in my own arrogance, I thought, we could, we, we could be better than these, you know? Mm. And Larry said, Larry, I always looked up to him, my older brother, and he was always wiser, the wise one. And he said, maybe, Paul, maybe. He didn't want to discourage me, but didn't want me to get too excited. And uh, so I remember then we started playing locally, the Magnet Bar in Pear Street, uh, just up the road from where we lived in Rings End. And, you know, the usual thing, the first gig had, I think, 12 people. We were actually counting the people as they're coming in, you know, and saying hello. And we built up and built up. And then one night we were going there to play the gig. And what did we see outside one Friday night? A queue. <laughs> and a queue going round the corner. Not a huge queue, but a queue nonetheless. And I remember thinking, well, maybe yeah. we've actually, you know, talk about traction. I think, well, maybe we have something now. Because it's very hard uh, when you're on stage yourself to hear yourself, to see yourself. Obviously, you can't see yourself. So you really don't know. You're, uh, you know... You're just you're just in this tunnel of energy and excitement and adrenaline where you you keep doing what you do. You try to do it well, and you just hope that that people might might like it. You, now, know? you reckon that might have been like seventy eight, seventy nine, mm. sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just give me a sense because I wasn't here at the time, and I'm reading about this in retrospect. Yeah. You're talking playing the Magnet in mm. Pierce Street. Pierce Street. Yeah. Tell me about some of the other venues and what. Because <clears throat> for instance, there was Morton's Hotel as well. Yeah. Was that around the same period? It was. It was slightly before. Funnily enough, when we were in seventy seven, I didn't go. But the rest the band went to see the Rats yeah. in Morns. It was one of their final gigs before they left. 
uh, and they said that was a great steamy, sweaty venue. There was Morns. There was a place called the Steering Wheel, another place called the Spinning Wheel. The venues were small, but funnily enough, I'd say it was easier to get a gig then as as a young up and coming band than it would be now, where it's it's all very organised now uh, with promoters yeah. and stuff. And I just think it's much harder now. They were very much DIY jobs. These were all pubs that used to do cabaret, yeah. and. Uh, we used to just go to them and say, look, can we put a night on? Can we play? What type of band is it? It's punk rock. And they, well, all right, can you bring a few people, bring your own PA and bring a few people? It was DIY. Yeah. There were no official poster sites yeah. then, so we used to sort of make our own posters. In fact, a guy, Carl Signus, a great guy, used to write for Hot Press. Hello, he's Carl. still around. He ha- he's a DJ and he has his own radio show. Uh, uh, he's a great guy, Carl. Carl designed our posters and we just put them up ourselves. We had to, Booklet of paste in the in the back and the ladder, and we went around town putting them up wherever we thought was suitable. And so it was DIY, and uh, it was a great atmosphere. And we were very young, and we didn't know how long it was going to last or it was going to last. You know, we're talking about nineteen seventy seven, seventy eight. It's now two thousand eighteen, <laughs> and we're playing the academy on on, on the fifteenth of December. And there'll be a queue. You, know, yeah. you mentioned the jam. Yeah. They didn't make long songs in those days, Paul. That's the the jam there in all mod cons. The choice of Paul Cleary who's with me in studio. Very short, wasn't it? That's oh, great. And we went to see the jam. They played uh, they played in, in the top hat it was called, was the venue in, in Dunleary. And uh, myself myself, Larry and Pat. We very, we didn't always go together to gigs, but we went out to see them. They were great, you know. Did you see short. the clash in the top hat? We saw the clash in Trinity College. In October 1977. Wow, and that's now that was recently the subject of a what's the word a symposium really? at Trinity. Ah. Yeah, they got they got, got people together and Don lets and people are over and ah really yeah, yeah. it's, it's funny gig. but it's these 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 things that were part of your life yeah are now historical things they're being studied they're being talked about you know oh that was it David the, the Count Bishops were supporting them and uh, yeah again that was the second myself Larry and Pat went to that one and like uh, you know. The smell of Turkish cigarettes when you went into the place. Not that we were smoking, we weren't smoking at, uh, smoking at the time. That was even enough that, to, to make the atmosphere even more heady, if you like. And, uh, and we had a few drinks before. And a clash. Talk about energy. Yeah. Wow, you know. And, and uh, Strummer was just wired, you know. And, of course, Paul Simlin is the best posers ever, you know. Great looking guy with great pose. And, and, and John, Mick Jones, great guitarist. And, and then... For us, the best of all was Topper, yeah. because oh, he was a magnificent. That drummer, was the drummer. Yeah. That was a drummer we wanted. We we found our Topper when when, when no district the pa who was great in his own way and a lovely drummer. But when Jake Riley came into the band, Jake was still with us. He was heavy drummer. I mean, he hit he hit the drums, you know, really really hard. And one of Jake's, I think his favorite drummer is Topper. And uh, you know, he was the one. He drove that band. He's a fantastic guy. You know? When you uh, heard the Clash and presumably listened to all their all their records. Did that um, introduce a level of politics into your thinking or was it already there? No, it was already there for me. Myself and Larry and Pat, we were quite proud to be a working class band, to be from a working class area. And we didn't try to hide it. Having said that, we did get some, we didn't have to make make it up, but there was some some credibility to be had in the punk era from being genuinely working class. Mm. So uh, I hope we didn't abuse that position, our own position, but we certainly would, we stood up for ourselves and I still do. There's certain bands who I still hear being slagged or their accents being slagged because they're working class. I'll be the first to jump up and say, mm. 
this is nonsense, you know. And so that's a lot of it was personal. But in terms of the socialism and stuff, that came, that grew as I started to read. Funnily enough, this will tell you, and again, Larry being my influence. I'm going back years now when I was going over to Manchester with my football team. It was my first away trip, first time on a on a plane, you know, whatever it was, forty five minutes to Manchester, and I was uh, I was I was like, well, was it maybe twelve, thirteen? Larry was fifteen, and I asked Larry, you know, do you want me to get you something in England? You know, in England you could get like opal fruits or something ex- exotic. Do you know what he asked for? Das Kapital by Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I said, I'll, I'll try, Larry. It's of course, heavy, it, yeah. It's a heavy that's, book that's where a fifteen-year-old asked me to get him in Manchester. It's a heavy book to bring home. Yeah. Yeah. And that uh, much of that, when you think about it, was down to your mother and father. Oh well, they, but like my dad, well, they're both working class people, of course. But my dad wasn't a socialist, uh, so that didn't the politics. My politics didn't come from yeah, him. Yeah, but you saw you saw a working class man who was obviously extremely intelligent, yeah. extremely curious about learning yeah. and, and educated himself, yeah, yeah. and was as well informed as the next man. Sure, uh, but had never been to university, or you know, wouldn't have had the opportunity. And so I see on. what you mean. Yeah, no, that did. I was I was frustrated that he he certainly. He just didn't have those waters to swim in that other people did. So, you know, I did. I felt sorry for him. Now, he wouldn't want me to. And I mean that in the most respectful way. I felt sorry for him because he was so smart and clever and really didn't really have people to bounce off. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've been in situations where working class people are slightly patronised for being smart or for having an interest in the arts. It's not so prevalent now, one would hope. But well, uh, certainly you do back still then, get yeah. people. I mean, it would be said to, you know, people who work in, in the arts, you know, mm. you, you, in theatre or whatever it is, you, you will get those voices saying, well, what does this mean to the ordinary man? Yeah, now, yeah. the person who's saying that is the one with the problem. Sure, sure. You know, yeah. Because, you know, your father's sitting in a room listening to Ibsen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He was sitting in his house and dreaming of listening to Ibsen. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. What does it mean to the ordinary man? Uh, there you go. Yeah. It means nothing to you, mate. Mm. It, might, it might mean a lot. It might mean a lot to everybody sure. else. Let's have uh, let's take a break. But before that, I want to play this, Paul. This isn't your choice. This is Mystery Train, RT Lyric FM, Sunday night, the special where we get someone in to pick the tunes. And uh, just before the break, we had Last Man in Europe from the Blades. And with me tonight is Paul Cleary of the Blades, picking all the music. It's been good so far. Paul, that Last Man in Europe track with the horn section and everything. Yeah. When did the horn section start coming into the Blades? Well, uh, that came after, when Larry left the band, (coughs) which is, Larry left the band, I think in 81, 82, let's say, 1982. uh, You know, it was a terrible shock to me. Uh, well, it wasn't a shock, to, no, but it was, well, it was a shock to the system. I knew he was leaving. I knew it was on the cards and he decided to leave. And really, it was, uh, I felt very uh, alone and weak and vulnerable. And I just, I couldn't even contemplate getting another guitarist to replace him because he was so unique and, and so good at what he did. And it just would have been unfair to bring in a guitarist and mm. he just would have, wouldn't have compared well with, you know. So I, I, because I was always into uh, Motown and Stax and that type of music, I thought, why not get the brass in? I was also very influenced by Dexys at the time. Yeah. And I thought this would be a great time. And I could then indulge myself and do what my dad used to suggest to do and start arranging and maybe writing for brass, which I've never, you know, I just had a go. I just thought, well, why not? I'll try it and start writing trombone and trumpet parts. And it worked out really well for me. And, and uh, I was I was really pleased with the result. And I was really lucky to get Paul Grimes 
and Trombone and Frank Duff and Trumpet who are still with me are just great players yeah. uh, as importantly though in a band not only they're great players they're lovely people yeah. they're affable guys easy to get on with and that's very important in a band Can when imagine. you're rehearsing somebody or you have to think oh my God, I'm going to sit in a van with this person every three hours and there and three hours back or whatever so these things are important as well you know so that's where the brass came from and funnily enough we were talking about politics earlier on the last man you up the title itself like I was reading a lot of George Orwell at the time and he helped me sort of formulate my political ideas as well and and uh you know, the working title, and not a lot of people know this, for 1984 was The Last Man in Europe. And because we recorded it in 1984 and I had that song, I thought it would be a great title to call it The Last Man in Europe. And uh, so that's where that title came from. And and uh, um, we recorded that in, in North London. And at the time, in 1984, it was the minor strike. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was... Uh, it was a devastating time in some ways when you seen what was happening to the miners. And I was so pro the miners and their cause and it was it was Margaret Thatcher trying to break the unions and trying to and trying to break the working class in some ways the working class of England being an internationalist it didn't matter to me that it was English or German I'm not uh, nationalistic in that sense I'm anti-imperialist but I'm not a nationalist yeah. but what I am is a socialist and I was to me that was a really important time for uh, the working class in England and you know Thatcher did everything she could to crush them and I felt like somehow because I was making an album and a lot of my songs weren't political you know they're about affairs of the heart which are very important too some might say more important ultimately and there I was making an album in in Wood Green and in in North London and meanwhile outside this this war was going on a war between the establishment and the working class it was a strange position to be in really I think people who weren't around at the time mightn't realise just how vitriolic that whole scene was. I mean, oh. Thatcher's Britain was a really nasty place. Oh, it was a nasty place. She was a nasty person. And, uh, you know, this is what she tried to do. By the way, it was a time of the... I think the, the Brighton bombing actually happened when we were uh, in the studio at the time, um, around that time. Uh, but, yeah, there was, it was a... Look, it was a really... A time of real upheaval in, in, in politics and, and, uh, and in Ireland too, of course. We, there were we quite had, a few musicians, though, weren't there? I mean, there were. I'm thinking of all those gigs there were for the miners and so on. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. Cole, Cole Nod Dole badges were everywhere. Yeah, a uh, like band called the Redskins are very good. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Oh, I was good. They did get great support, uh, but I, as you would expect, really. Did you ever? Did you ever regret? Regrets not the thing because you don't regret your principles. But do you ever? Did you ever secretly wish that you didn't have these principles, that, and you might have done better if you didn't have them? No, because I don't think they affected me really. You know, things just happen, and they happen for some bands. They don't happen for others. Myriad of reasons, really. And I, I really, if I, if I started to analyse, I'd probably, I'd end up. You know, it's just look. Some people say. Uh, there's a tendency to think, well, you didn't make it because you're not good enough. And then other people who are really nice people, well-meaning people, will make a lot of excuses for you didn't make it because maybe this or maybe if that had happened. So who knows the confluence of events and things that mm. happen, things that don't happen. We are where we are, as they say. Yeah, you know? and then what is making it anyway? Well, this is it, what yeah. I mean, mean? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, does it mean being money rich? Genuinely, you know, of course we need money to pay bills. It's a very important thing. And, but money never meant that much to me. Anyone who knows me will tell you that. I don't have a car, I don't drive, I don't buy expensive clothes. Money is not that important. It's important to pay bills and stuff mm. and, you know, feed your children. But it's not, you know, so I never went into music for money. So What I mean, if artistic success is to create great work, you've, yeah. done, you've done that and you're I, still well, doing it. I appreciate that. I mean, I suppose what I do, I miss out on more people not enjoying my music or yeah. known, known about my music, yeah, to be honest, yeah. you know? Because that, that, yeah, of course, there's a certain level of success means that you reach more people. Yeah, that's what I've always that's wanted to reach a lot of people. Yeah. Now, I haven't achieved that. Uh, 
So that is, I, I feel, when, and when I say the word, it's quite a stark word. When I say the word failure, I've been reprimanded by my own supporters for saying, Paul, you shouldn't be downing yourself and you're not a failure. But I'm not. It's, it, there's, it's a nuanced view. I, I, I know I'm not a failure, but I failed in one of my ambitions was to make the Blades a big international success. Mm-hmm. On that count, I failed, I suppose. Now, other people come back in a really positive way and say, but... You know, Down Market, Ghost of a Chance to Bride or Why sure. Some People Smile. They're great songs that mean a lot to a lot of people. And by the way, that doesn't pass me by. That's so important to me. Mm. Uh, occasionally, people might come up to me in the street or whatever and say, such and such a song means so much. You've heard so many artists saying that. And when they say it's important to them, believe them, because it is. I know it is. Because yeah. it's really important to me. That'll make my day. And when somebody comes up to me and says, Paul, do you know such and such a song? That means a lot because of X, Y, or Z. They'll give you a little backstory. And it'll be so important to them. But it's important to me when they say that, because that's it's, it's why you write songs. It's to make a connection. It's to make an emotional connection. When somebody says, why do you write songs? It's to emotionally connect with someone. Very well put. Your next choice, Paul, is what? What is my next choice? Well, you, you pick. We're all right. We're, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're, what's the word now? We're, it's freeform from here on in. Freeform, OK. Yeah. Well, we'll go for the Ronettes, Be My Baby. Ah, well, that, I'm not going to argue with that. There's the Ronettes, Be My Baby, the choice of uh, Paul Cleary, who's with me in studio, picking picking all the tracks. Just we were talking earlier, Paul, about, you know, when you do have, you know, uh, principles mm. uh, and you're, you're an artist, you know, occasionally you will rule yourself out of things and so on. And I just yeah. remembered, I mean, I remember self-aid, for instance, uh-huh. and you didn't do that. No. And that would be the equivalent, if anybody doesn't remember that period, of maybe being offered to do... Uh, live aid or something and saying I'm not doing it yeah um, on some kind of sound principle mm-hmm. um, that you know the, that would have brought a certain amount of exposure and so on and so forth but it also would set you apart because everybody else seemed to be doing it sure even people you thought wouldn't do it I know. did it you know I know I found it at, at the time now for people again younger people and, and most people are younger than us now John <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong um, that was 1986 I think it was 1986 I had f- just finished with the Blades I had a, my band called the Partisans and we were offered to do the gig but look it was for unemp- it was a basic charity for unemployment it yeah. just didn't sit right with me at all yeah. I, you know whatever about even I had, even though I did write a, a, a charity song for the famine in Ethiopia uh uh, show some concern. Uh, my only number one. <laughs> I think that's because Christy Vaughan is still on it, you know. Uh, 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 people who are actually very popular. But um, yeah, in terms of the self hate, I didn't like it. I didn't like the smell of it. I didn't want to do it. And I, I would have been at the height of my sort of socialism at the time, people, anyway. You, you, people could phone in and pledge a job. Pledge a job. Yeah. Very, I thought that was strange myself. Yeah, and and I, I really knew the game was up when who walked onto the studio to talk to Pac Annie in his uniform but Ronald McDonald himself. You know, I, you know, really, you know. But I was at the gig. You are see, you? I couldn't you? resist going because the I, the idea of seeing Van and Rory and everybody, you too, and so every, on, yeah. see, the point is, everybody did. Yeah, everybody, all the big bands played. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, my own criticism of the event or the concept, rather, uh, was was just that I just didn't like yeah. it, and it wasn't a criticism of the band. Sometimes you tend, to, people tend to say there's a bit of a siege mentality that. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't be critical of, of Christy Moore or you two for doing something like that. Yeah. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. And when, you, when something's not for you, it doesn't mean it's not for everyone. Yeah. As I said earlier on about my dad and my brother loving jazz, yeah. I, didn't, I couldn't really get into it. It doesn't mean I don't like the idea of jazz. <laughs> or jazz should be banned because I don't like it. Or you don't know? like the people who like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you know. I mean, that, I'm just thinking back to that time 
and you know before I knew any of the players involved mm. I didn't know you at the time either um, there was always this thing set up as well as if the, the blades were there was the blades and you two divide which you've talked about more recently yeah. in, a, in a very sort of more in a very benign kind yeah. of uh, yeah. relaxed relaxed way otherwise sure. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bring it up was that just a kind of a, a perceived kind of setup that 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 you know the blades and you two were both heading for the finish line and um, or or was that was that reality? I think quite possibly. I mean, Brian Boyd of the Irish Times wrote an article a good few years ago. So I'm quoting him because it would be it wouldn't be right for me to say this, yeah. even if I thought it, which I'm not sure what it is. But he said, look. Dublin was, was and is the city of a thousand bands, but around that time there were only two bands worth talking yeah. about, and that was you two and the Blades. So I think the rivalry, I would like to think it was a healthy rivalry, born out of the fact that we were the best bands around. Now, it doesn't sit right me saying that even, but yeah. that seemed to be, that's what other people say. Yeah. Okay, I can't yeah. be, uh, that's, that's I can't a generally, be objective about generally it. generally you know? held view. That yeah. doesn't mean, there were a lot of good bands around, yeah. by the way, a lot of good bands, yeah. not only in Dublin and Cork, yeah. Derry, Belfast, yeah. Galway, but also what happened, I, I didn't help in that I took a couple of cheap pot shots because <clears throat> I think looking back now, I think I was a bit envious that they were out of the starting gate and they were starting to move. Uh, because we both started around the same time, we played a series of gigs to bag it in. Uh, we played McGonagall's with them a few times. So it was you two under the blades, and we were both. You know, there's there's rivalry, but it's not it's not hostile. Yeah. But you know, it's competition rather. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, we're all we're all trying. We're all sending our demo tapes to record companies in England. There's A and R men coming over to see the bands, and there's a bit of there's a bit of oh we're getting Beards are coming over to see us, or A and M are coming over yeah. to see us. That but when they started to move, I, I you know I I started to envy them in a way. And, and their their uh, uh, maybe their success or their projected success. Yeah. So I took a couple of pot shots, which maybe I, I shouldn't have done, and I don't think that helped. But really, I think as well, I don't think there was any real. Uh, I mean, the supporters of both they were mutually exclusive in a way. Mm -hmm. I think it was difficult for people to like both bands. I think Dave Fanning. There's a few exceptions, yeah. but I think generally people who like the Blades like the Blades. I didn't like you two. You were a different gang. Kind of and I think the same is, uh, it was the same. Now, I won't go into the reasons why I think that is because I'm only going to be biased. Just, yeah. You know, obviously, I'm going to think the Blades are a better band. I'm the only one in the world who does. But, you know, that's so there were different reasons why yeah. this rivalry was set up. But really, as I said to people, and I'll say it again, given the opportunity, you two never treated us badly at all. They were really, I mean, they were good guys. Yeah. They were, you know, they were civil. They kept themselves within themselves. They're very self-contained, which I admired, as we were. And they never damaged their sound. Like, there was a thing going at the time where the support band, you, the sound man would be told by the main band to turn their sound down. That type of, You two never indulged in that type of yeah. pettiness, you yeah. know? Yeah. So they were, they were good, and yeah. they treated us well. And uh, I have no problem with them. And good luck to them. And I can imagine so many bands with that type of success who would just would be... Uh, uh, they would just go mad on it, you right. know? And so, therefore... It's nice to be able to say that we were there. We were there at the starting gate with them, you know. But uh, it also would it would have been nicer had had we have gone with them as well to their, to their level of, of success and popularity. It's not over yet. It's not over yet. We're still trying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your next musical choice, Paul, is is what? My next one. What about, well, we we've had. Um, well, about we go for the undertones. We're talking about bands starting off, and the undertones. I've never been there. They used to play a place in Derry called the Casbah. And apparently, this is what this song is about. Maybe some of the guys who used to jump around when they were playing. And they, look, the undertones are everything. Are the sort of pop punk in essence? They are. That's it. They are dist a distillation of all that's good around of, of that time. You know. Do 
Jump Boys, The Undertones. Paul Cleary's with me in studio tonight picking all the tracks. It, uh, you know, it wouldn't have occurred to me that I just stuck that on, how close that is, kind of to the blades. Because yeah. they, they had that huge pop sensibility as well. Oh, well, that's what we... That was, that was the sound we were looking to achieve. Obviously, you know, nobody's going to sound like Fergal Sharkey in terms of singing, but uh, no, in terms of the guitar stuff, and uh, John O'Neill, they're, they're, and they're great, and, and he's, he's a great songwriter. And I just love their attitudes, and no nonsense, no frills, and a really good pop sensibility. It's a good pop sensibility, and great that's from the first album and it still sounds great you know when you look at some of the people now from that that era Paul um, Paul Weller Elvis Costello all these people that, mm. that, that, that you admire um, these are all people like yourself who had more to their music than just what they revealed at the beginning mm-hmm. you know and it turns out that you know Weller clearly likes Neil Young and he likes all mm. sorts of stuff and and Costello, you know, knew as much about Gershwin as he did yeah. about Ray Charles and all that kind of stuff. It's all in there. Those people have managed to successfully deal with getting older and keep making music in mm. a credible way. Yeah. What happens when you are in a kind of a, a punk or a new wave band and you, mm. you yourself start to think, look, I can't be presenting this all mm. the time. I need to move on somehow. Mm. Well, you just push what I did. I'm quite conservative anyway in life and, and uh, I'm not really a risk taker, but... Uh, you know, uh, really, when you get to when you start to get a bit more uh, sophisticated, is not the right word. Just when I started to get to know music a bit more, I wanted to write songs that might be a bit have a few more colours to them and use a few more chords and stuff, and listen to and make a few more just to make it more interesting for myself. Because if I get bored writing three or songs of three or four chords like Jump Boys, there, which is great, but I can't do that all the time. I yeah. didn't want to do it all the time. And like you said, people, you know, they keep these things. I was, I was into Burt Bacharach and, and that type of thing, which maybe wouldn't have been a good thing to say at the time. And Joni Mitchell, I, I think, is just a genius, you know. But and it's terrible. The one thing I do feel guilty about is I didn't come out and be honest and say in 1977, by the way, I also love Joni Mitchell yeah. and Burt Bacharach. Yeah. It wasn't a thing to say. So you're right about these people uh, listening, like whatever it would be with, um, uh, you know, Elvis Costello listened to Gershwin. I remember being a kid and going to see a concert from school, national school. I think it was Michelle or something, Sean O'Reilly. And I remember the hair standing up the back of my neck and yeah. thinking, this is just... And I was the only one of, of maybe there's one or two of us who were interested. Yeah. But again, it made me realise I really loved music and music did something to me because, again, I was in a trance afterwards and I remember thinking, that was just that was just fantastic. Yeah. I, I knew nothing. I was an absolute ignoramus in terms of music. And yet, this orchestral music was just... And this is why they did that but when you think of it why would they bring kids from a national school to see an orchestra playing Michelle it was maybe in case one or two of them yeah. had an interest in music and this would inspire them and it did it worked so somebody it, was doing something right it's there, exposure you know? again yeah, 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 yeah. So, so then the, the songs that you wanted you felt you wanted to write as you said bring in more colours and mm. more chords and so on and, and then of course the thing is when you get older You've got more to write about. Sure. Unless unless you're a genius like Bob Dylan and you can write stuff when you're 18. Sure. But most people can't. Yeah, or Joni yeah. Mitchell could do it. Sure. Or Jackson Brown. Yeah, yeah they yeah. could write grown-up songs when yeah. they're very young. Yeah. But, the, you know, suddenly you get a bit older and a bit, well, hopefully wiser, but also mm-hmm. kind of steadier. Mm-hmm. And you can write about all this stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. And did you have any difficulty in making that kind of transition from writing about songs that would, would be presentable in a three-piece, high-energy mm. pop band, you know? Yeah. Um, to writing more uh, songs that you'd expose yourself maybe you'd be more vulnerable or uh, yeah. any of that kind of thing well no I mean uh, that transition usually happens uh, it can be seen it's, it's it, even though it's a change it's still quite linear whereas my 
career, for want of a better word, is, is stop start has been. So I've played for a while, played for a few years, haven't played, got a different band. And so it really has been stop start. So it has been, uh, the paradox is it's been more difficult for me to make the change because it's not in public. So when, right. I, make, when I sort of sing the songs, three card songs or four card songs, and then stop for a few years and come out with something that's a good bit different, uh, like in what's it, 2000, 2002, or 2001, Crooked Town, <coughs> which is a solo album. Uh, I think that was quite different to a lot of the Blade stuff. And but I was a little bit afraid that people would say this, you know, oh, the Blades are much better. Why don't you go look like, Woody Allen? Yeah. Why don't you go back to making funny movies? Yeah. You know? And similarly with Modernized, uh, our album from two years ago, you know, I there's still stuff there that's identifiably the Blades, like the opening track and stuff. But there are other songs I would hope that people might, all I'm hoping for is people to identify with the songs that they have some emotional connection, but also to say, oh, that's different, but it's still good. Well, here, let's, I have it here, actually. Let's play something from Modernized. Yeah. You, you make the call, Paul. What do you want to hear? Uh, best there's a song one. called Then Came You, yep. which was, uh, which is a quieter, it's certainly not Jump Boys. <laughs> okay, Then Came You, the Blades. Ah, that's a great song. Uh, then came you from uh, the Blades. Paul Cleary there, and Paul's with me in the studio. A couple of things I want to ask you about that, for instance. I mean, on this album, let me just read so I've got it correct. All songs, words, and music by Paul Cleary. That's yeah. fine. We know we know you can do that. But yeah. it also says all trumpet, trombone, and string parts written and arranged by Paul Cleary. Now yeah. you mentioned earlier on writing the, the horn parts. Yeah. Uh, way back. Mm. Where did you, or did you learn to do that, or did you just do it? I just did. I just. Uh I just had a go. I mean, because I was reasonably well, ver- uh, because I, I I had listened to the music, I have good ears for these type of things maybe and uh, I was always interested, as I said, my dad was always interested in arrangements. He told me to listen to Nelson Riddle stuff and Quincy Jones, that type of thing and listen to the strings and the brass and the horns and that's what I did. So at least when, it, when I came to do it, I wanted to do it. I wanted it even to fail, I just wanted to do it and I remember we were making the album in 1984 with John Porter the producer and my brass guys didn't come over so we had very good guys a guy called Martin Dover trumpet player I think he played with Van Morrison and Mel Collins on saxophone and the trombonist who was from a a brass band up in Barnsley somewhere in Yorkshire and and, uh, they were great guys and uh, you know I I didn't read or write music so John would say look this guy has his own brass arrangements they were great though and I went out this you know semi-literate musical musically semi-literate kid and uh, well 24 year old at the time whatever it was and I'd sing the parts and they'd write them down and they were great and very encouraged hey these things work and then that's what I did and it was a great thrill to hear these really professional guys play these parts that that, that I composed you know I I know a musician um, from your era who went off and learned music so that he could write down the the parts you know to communicate with other musicians what, what he wanted but could you retain all that information in your head. Yeah, I, I wrote down the parts, obviously not in musical notation, but in notes. Yeah. So obviously because I'd know the chords and stuff and I'd write the notes. And again, this is where Paul uh, Grimes and Frank Duff come into their own because they're very musical. They can read and write anyway. So if I went out to them quite quickly with their parts as I saw them, they'd write them down. Right, okay. So that's it, they're there. Yeah. Uh, I'm not changing subject violently. It's the same subject, actually. It's a good segue actually, into... Um, I, I saw a documentary called Love Shines about Ron Sexsmith, uh, the Canadian uh, singer-songwriter. And it was just, it was a great uh, documentary. It was about the making of his album, Long Player, Late Bloomer. And it was, I think he came into a few bob because his compatriot, Michael Bublé, covered one of his songs. And Ron, I, uh, you know, 
I'm not putting myself in that category again because I can't be objective about my own work, but something about him and when he was talking about his music and in a way his lack of real international success, even though he's reasonably well known, but it's all to scale, you know, uh, resonated with me. And he got this money and he got Bob Rock, another Canadian who's very successful in Metallica and all those, but producer. I think he was throwing his few into this. He wanted to make it big in a way. Mm. And uh, so the album they made was Long Player, Late Bloomer, and the documentary was called Love Love Shines. And um, it was it was just a fan, it was fantastic, just to see him struggle to try and come up with something really popular and yet retain his own dignity. Well, you see what you're talking about earlier about success. And we were talking about whatever that is, and everybody have their own idea what it is. But also just the amount of luck and bad luck and circumstance and stuff that comes in. Ron Sexsmith for me is a prime example. When I when I heard his first record, I would have put my house on it. Oh. that this guy was going to be the most successful songwriter for the generation ahead. Because yeah. I thought every song was a winner. And he keeps doing it, writing these songs, songs, songs. And then I thought, I feel I feel completely vindicated because Elvis Costello and Elton John and Paul McCartney, everybody's agreeing with me. <laughs> it's all over the place. Everybody's saying this guy, Ron. Yeah. And there seems to be no reason that anybody can think of yeah. that Ron Sexsmith is not the best known songwriter yeah. on the planet. And yet he's not. He's not. Who can say? Them's the breaks. I yeah, mean, you them's know, the breaks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It makes no sense. No, and uh, I think he's great. And uh, I really took an interest in him. I had heard of him, of course, and I'd heard some of his records. And I did think he was good. Um, but somehow, and wrongly, I thought he was more Costello light. Yeah. But now I realise, like, and I love, I love Elvis, you know, but I realise now that Ron Sexton, he certainly does sing and speak from the heart. Oh, I mean, yeah. His albums, in fact, are less cerebral, his songs, and more emotional than Costello's. He's very way. much a Harry Nielsen oh, fan, it's, you know. It's, it's, really, it's, it's real stuff, you know, and, and uh, he's a fantastic songwriter. So my next song, uh, Believe It When I See It, is from that album. And uh, it's just a great song. And, you know, I'd recommend people who, are not, who haven't heard of Ron Sex just to get into them. They'll, they'll find something they like. They'll find one song, or at least one song, that'll just hit them hard, you know. And that's Ron Sexsmith, Believe It When I See It, the choice of Paul Cleary. That, that, as you say, that was a kind of a, a, an attempt at a real big, sort of big production. Yeah. But what's that guy again? Bob Mountain, is that his name? Bob, Bob Rock. Bob Rock. Bob yeah. Rock. Bob Mountain. He did Metallica. He also Bob, did some Bob of Claremont. Metallica. Yeah, he did. Bob Claremont was another <laughs> a different guy. Yeah. Mixing them up. Yeah. But uh, now Bob Rock did Metallica and uh, I think he did some of Michael Bublé, Aerosmith maybe, and he's a big producer. He knows and, how to make hits. Yeah, and, but he was, I mean, he came across well in the documentary too, to yeah. be fair, you know. Yeah. He really was very encouraging, very helpful. And, uh, you know, Ron Sexsmith was, he, he was really communicating his frustration at his lack of success. Mm. Whereas Bob Rock, you know, Bob Rock was saying, look, but look, you've written some great songs. You've, you've done things that other people haven't done. And, and that's half, that's half. The, it's very hard when, you, when you're told that. I, I've been told a few times, not by Bob Rock, you know, but uh, I've been told that, you know, look, my songs, and it is great to hear that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, again, to change, to change something a bit. Words of encouragement are great. When they Christopher are. Hitchens was was dying of cancer, um, you know, I remember him saying a few times, oh, by the way, those letters of encouragement and letters of praise, keep writing them, keep sending them, they do help, you know. Mm. And then people, you know, so no matter how uh, <coughs> contrarian or how, uh, uh, like, uh, you know, um, non-establishment people appear to be, 
whether it be Christopher Hitchens or Ron Sex, people need encouragement, people need help. Oh, yeah. You know, and they need to be told what you're doing is of, of, has some value. Oh, well, you, you, know? you have no idea how, or yeah. what, what effect the kind word might have because yeah, you, you, yeah. don't, you don't know the circumstances in which you're meeting people, sure. you know? You just yeah. don't know. Um, your next choice is, uh, well, well, you pick. We've, got, we've mentioned... Uh, I think you mentioned we Mar- spoke Mar- about Mar- Elvis Costello yeah, well, relations right. now this one I, I went to see Elvis Costello in the Stella Cinema in Ratmines in Dublin which is now a cinema again yeah. it was closed for ages in March of 1978 it was just before the release well certainly before I had heard the second album uh, this year's model and myself and my brother went I think we got there two songs late because I thought he opened up with uh, No Action which the album opens up with uh, but he apparently sang two songs before we were drinking an agon of uh, vodka and Sandy Mount Green and uh, we were old enough to do so and uh, before getting the 18 bus to uh, to Rap Mines and, and uh, um, you should write that, write that down there's a little song there <laughs> yeah, yeah. drinking an yeah. of vodka and you know, we were Green while we were there we were fin- finishing it off we were thinking will we, go, will we leave this vodka and go Mickey Jupp was the support we thought no we'll keep going we'll drink the vodka we'll just go we went in as we went into the Stella Elvis came out well, he didn't come in, he was there, but just about the interview, and he, and he launched into no action. Which is one minute and 59 seconds long. Yeah. I tell you, they do not make them like they used to. I don't want to kiss you, I don't want to touch Dion Warwick, do you know the way to San Jose? Before that, Elvis Costello and the attractions from this year's model, and uh, no action. One minute... 59. That's the way they used it's to make great, them in the old it? days. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and Dion Warwick. You're saying that's, that's the sound of your childhood. Yeah, that was my dad. That was my dad's record. And my mum used to play too. But all that stuff, yeah, the Dion Warwick, that he, he, used to, he used to play a lot of horror stuff. And Ella Fitzgerald. I could have easily played Ella Fitzgerald, uh, you know. Uh, we'll take Manhattan. You know. The Bronx and, and Staten, Staten Island, Island too. too yeah. and, uh, Tell so me what street compares to Mott Street in July. Those lyrics are that's stunning, great, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, I could have played, yeah, uh, Elvis Gerald too. And as I said, Buddy Holly, a lot of Buddy, early Buddy Holly stuff as well, you know. So I got a great education. Now, you want to play some Paul Brady? Yeah. And uh, I know, I mean, I know that you know Paul. Mm. I know, well, I don't know him that well. I mean, what, because we come from completely different backgrounds, really. I mean, I first saw him sing this, I don't know, in the 77, 78, whenever it was, on television. And like, you know, it's not Elvis Presley in a black leather suit in, in Las Vegas in 66 it's Paul Brady's quite studious looking you know red hair and glasses which is good that's the way Paul is and he's great and it's not rock and roll and it's it's you know it's an old, it's a song about it's it's an old song but it's just beautifully sung the paradox is it is it really is soul music although you might think at first glance superficially it's an old folk song or it's an old Irish song Everything that Paul does, I think, has integrity and honesty about it. And that's what's so good about this song. But really, the lyrics are beautiful. They're very old world. There's only really maybe Morrissey can write lyrics like that now. It's just the way that the phraseology and the words that are used. And it's quite cinematic. I mean, the opening line, me and my cousin, young Arthur McBride, were taking a walk down by the seaside. That's beautiful couplet. And it's just really well written. It scans well. And it's beautiful. And the whole thing opens up for you from there on in. And it's a very sad very uh, dramatic song for what happens to the guys. The, you know, it's the narrator describes how these two British Army guys 
tried to recruit two Irish guys into the, into the British Army and so and there's 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 hell to pay for it and in the end it's quite a violent song I don't think it's a Republican song by any means it's certainly anti-imperialist song which which, which suits me um, but I remember seeing Paul singing it on the television just, and saying to my brother again Larry this this guy is real this is beautiful his voice it, you know again the thing about the hair stand up in the back of the neck and so after that then I, I let it be known that I liked the song in an interview or hot press or someone and Niall Stokes I think got told Paul Brady and and, and we, we were there was a show for a hot press awards maybe in, in the Project Arts Centre and Paul expressed an interest in playing with us and that's when I first met him whenever Hearts around the time of Hearts Station yeah. was that 1980 something like that Maybe oh, something like that. Must have been. Yeah, and uh, Paul came to rehearsal. Terrible with dates. And with the difference between Paul Brady and and the Blades in terms of experience and so on, so we were really naive well, musically and stuff. But he, Paul knows all the music you know. Oh, of course he does, and that's yeah. what's going to say. He wasn't in the least bit elitist, snobbish or anything like that. He got totally into what we were doing and wanted to play whatever. Like, I, I wanted to do his songs, he wanted to do my songs. I think we ended up doing one of each. And later on then in 1983... We were both, this amendment that we got rid of eventually this year, in 1983, myself and Paul were against it being inserted into the Constitution all the way back then. So it's great that we at last we saw it uh, taken away. But we did a gig in the Bagger Inn and Paul played a gig, which he played about six or seven songs. It was a Blades gig and Paul came along as guest. And it was great to share the stage with him. Uh, and he was, but he is a good guy. He's a very intense performer, which all good performers are. But look, he's, this guy is the real deal. People say to me, what's that got to do with punk rock? You know, what's, what's Paul Brady singing uh, Art McBride got to do with Sid Vicious? Nothing. But it's, it's soul music and it's real. And that's what rock and roll, that's what true soul music is about. It's about somebody being real. And in Paul Brady's case, somebody being supremely talented. Paul Brady, Arthur McBride, the choice of the other Paul, Paul Cleary tonight, picking the tunes on uh, on Mystery Train. Paul, we've we've only got time for one more, but ah. be- before you go, uh, you, I think you mentioned this earlier. The Blades will be playing, and there will be a queue in December. In December, in the Academy, the Academy. in Abbey Street in Dublin, yeah, on the on the fifteenth. And what's what setup will you will you have the horn section there? Oh yeah, oh, we'll great. have the full band, and we'll have a keyboard player and our. Uh, the late great Pat Fitzpatrick, uh, he died last year. Yeah. The Belfast man, he was great. Pat was part of the band from the early, from, the, from in the 80s. And unfortunately, Pat went last year. But uh, we've Keen Boylan on keyboards. Keen has already played us a few gigs. He's great. We'd have Conor Brady on guitar, who's, right. in, in, in my biased opinion, the best guitarist in the country. He's just a fantastic player. And of course, the, the, the brass guys and Brian and Jake. And it's a great gig. You know, we've played there last year and the year before. And I just want people to, I want, obviously I want the people who come to come again. Yeah. But I also want people who've never seen the band, who may have liked some of this music I've played here. Who, I, I, you know, I only want to give us one chance, come and see the place just once and then, and then let's see, you know. Do you, do you enjoy it, Paul? Because I remember the, 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 the Reformation, it was mm. 2013 or whatever it was. You it know? was, yeah, yeah. And I remember going to that. In the Olympia, yeah. Yeah, and you looked so happy and so kind of surprised or something. Yeah. Shocked. I was you because know. that's when we reformed and uh, somebody said, well, I, I, you know, I put out this, I, I told the, the relevant people that I wanted to play a gig with the Blades again. They said, great, we, we heard, heard the Olympia for you. And I was almost, it was steady on the, the Olympia because we never played that size of venue before when we, when we were current to the Verde Commons, you know. Yeah. So uh, uh, I said, well, the Olympia, are we not sort of biting off a bit more than we could chew there? 
but as it happened somebody gave me a concert that's all now now we do another night yeah. the following nights we got two nights in Olympia. but so that's what that my pleasure was uh just my uh, it was like that people uh, were willing to pay and come and see the band and we had a big stage at last and it was great it was like a somehow like a testimonial and in a way it was vindication and it was vindication for them as well not only for us but to the supporters of the band who would have who would have been telling other people about other the good band called the Blades and they would have been jeered possibly or mocked it where's that band the Blades you used to like yeah. they haven't done anything and there we were yeah. in all our glory for what it was worth still still playing and playing reasonably well and they were able to say well there they are there there's the band we spoke about you yeah, know it was a great it was a really great night yeah. just just yeah. a Brilliant atmosphere. Yeah, it was a great atmosphere. Yeah. And there's always a good... Now, look, I'm going to say this, Emily. To me, there's always a great atmosphere at Blades gigs. The crowd are really knowledgeable. They know their music and, uh, you know, they're just a good crowd, in my opinion. You but know? you're right about all the things you just say. You know, you call, you know, they call the people in the audience supporters and they are there to support you yeah. as well. You yeah, know? So you yeah. can see that. And it was, as I say, it was a lovely thing to be at. So the 15th yeah. at the Academy, Yeah, the Blades. It's we're a Saturday night too, so no excuses. No excuses. No work tomorrow morning. No yeah. excuses for yeah. anybody. So um, we're going to finish with uh, what do you want Marvin Gaye yeah and this one is a, it's a, we're talking about the political and then songs in the heart funny enough this is a nice mix because it's sort of a political song in that it was funny enough there's a guy from the Four Tops I, I, his name escapes me the moment not to sing and not Levi Stubbs a guy from the Four Tops who saw the police harassing uh, an anti-war demonstration at the time and said this to Marvin Gaye and said you know, basically it was you know surmised by what's going on here what's happening people being hassled by the police so it's a lovely easy going feel and it's Marvin Gaye is just a beautiful singer I mean it's him and Smokey are probably the two best singers in the world you know well we, we, we let Stevie Wonder in there too you know but uh, you know so Marvin Gaye to sing this beautiful song but it's a political song he's basically saying for, for the time what's happening here what's going on you know Paul thanks a million thanks John I loved it You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.